and I went into another meeting after I almost jumped off the 360 bridge that afternoon. And I went into a meeting. I said, I think I need a, a new approach to sponsorship. So I went in there, and there were about 15 people just sitting around, and I said, hey, my name's Harris. I just almost jumped off the 360 bridge. I'm an alcoholic. And if you're not willing to stay after this meeting, the hell freezes over. Don't raise your blankety blank hand. And one guy who I'd never seen or laid eyes on before I heard from raised his hand and said I could do that. He did just that. He took care of me. I still consider him my sponsor today. He was sober one, March 13, 1988, which is one year and one day, longer than I had been sober, and he took me through the steps. He cared for me, and he did exactly what he said he would do. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hello, ladies and gents. That was the voice of my friend, Mr. Harris S., that you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you are going to hear so much more of his beautiful and thick Nolan's accent in just a moment. But first things First, this episode is brought to you by Patricia. Patricia went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. She clicked on that little donate tab, yeller donate tab, and she made a contribution. Thank you so much for your generosity, Miss Patricia. This episode is coming right out. To you, as usual, we are going to let all the other folks listen on in, but this episode is dedicated to you. Thank you very much. I, ladies and gentlemen, will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored to sit here in this seat and privileged to serve all of you listening in. All right. Just a quick announcement here. Mark your calendar once again for another, another. Yes, we're coming up with one more Uno Mas Sober Speak live event again on December 6th. And it will be with Mr. Not Mr. Ms. Brenda J. If you haven't heard Brenda J.'s episodes, they are episodes number 50 
and nine zero, and they will both blow you away. I highly recommend you listen to those. Anyway, that's going to be December 6th in uh, Frisco, Texas. All right. So here is a Facebook post that came in from Miss Victoria this week, Victoria B. And I just wanted to read it at the beginning of our episode before we go into uh, Harris's story. Um, It really just caught my attention and I, I wanted to share it with you folks. Victoria writes in, she says, my name is Victoria B and my sobriety date is March 14th of 2015. I felt compelled to write in as I was touched deeply by Gary Kay's talk on steps four through nine. She's talking about one of the episodes where Gary Kay discussed four through nine. I had been introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous at 17 and spent the next 10 years through revolving doors of treatment centers, AA rooms, hospitals, and sometimes jail. When I walked into the doors in March of 2015, I was completely broken. Filled with anger, resentment, and hopelessness, I became willing to listen. As an atheist, the God word has always scared me away, but I was so desperate that if I was told it would keep me sober, I'd have been I I'd have even prayed to a doorknob. I grew up in a spiritually sick home, a house of secrets and alcoholic pain. And one of the resentments I had held since I was a child was with my alcoholic father. And when it was time to make amends, I just couldn't do it. So I prayed and prayed for willingness for about two years, and then he was hospitalized close to his alcoholic death as his kidneys and liver were shutting down. I walked into that hospital room and I made my amends, and for the first time, I felt forgiveness through forgiving him. I didn't see a monster, but a sick man, a man who was sick like me. He survived, but was told if he drank, he'd die. And he stayed sober on his own two months, white knuckling it. And because my guard was down, I was able to share with him that there is a better room, better way in the rooms of AA. I was sure he didn't hear me. And a month later, he showed up to my home group. Fast forward to today. He has two years of sobriety, and we are starting to get to know each other. But this morning, I woke up broken, crying to my sponsor as I'm in fear as my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I was flooded with fear, a race against time, fear that we'd never get to fully heal But listening to Gary Kay's perspective with his father, his acceptance, his surrender truly touched me. I still deal with other active Al-Anons and addicts in my immediate family. And even with my dad, we tread new territory. I was in fear today that I may never make peace. But if I can be the best daughter, the best sister, the best Victoria that I can be, then I'll be okay. 
I just need to remove myself and be of service to God's children, which include my dad. Thank you again, Gary Kay and John, for making me hear his message possible, Victoria. Victoria, that just really caught my attention this week. Thank you so much for writing in on Facebook. I appreciate it. God bless you, your family, your dad, and uh, uh, keep on keeping on. You know, what I was thinking as I was reading that whole thing is, it's the same daughter, it's the same father, but things have changed. And what changed was you. And I'm so glad that you made it into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. All right, now on to Mr. Harris. Harris, if you did not catch the first episode with I, that I had with Mr. Harris, it is episode 93, and it's called The Founder of Citywide in Austin, which is a wonderful, group, uh, wonderful organization which Harris uh, uh, started many years ago, and I will go back and I would listen to that episode if you haven't heard it. But in this episode with Harris, uh, we're going to talk about his juvenile delinquency, the fact that he was kicked out of treatment, uh, and uh, his spiritual experience with a magic rabbit. Yes, that's what I said. A spiritual experience with a magic rabbit. Now, in my head, while I'm saying that, I'm thinking, I bet that wasn't a wascally wabbit. But nonetheless, his spiritual experience with a magic rabbit. And we talk about sponsorship and so many other topics. And uh, Harris just gets deep into his story. All right, folks. If you're not following me on the Instagram, I'm at Soberspeak. All one word. I went through this last week. Can you say at, at Soberspeak? Anyway, the handle is at Soberspeak, all one word. I wish you would follow me on the Instagram. If you want to be included in the secret Facebook group, email me your uh, email associated to with your um, Facebook account to John, J-O-H-N, at Soberspeak.com, and I will get you on there. Now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome my friend, Mr. Harris S. Okay, everybody, so we are sitting here again with Mr. Harris S. And uh, we've had Harris on an episode previously. Uh, We decided to come back and kind of finish out his story, if you will. And uh, so first of all, Harris, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself and give your sobriety date if you'd like to do that, sir. Sure. My name is Harris S. My sobriety date's 3-14-89. And as we discovered last time, that Three that that hmm. March fourteenth date is also your belly button birthday. Uh, th- this be true, you know. You never can tell how many times you get lucky on the same day. So <laughs> I was uh, reborn, as I discovered uh, later. Yes, uh, you literally were reborn. Yes, that's great. That's that, great. It was awesome. All right, so I'm just going to kind of give a, uh, a thumbnail sketch of what we covered last time, and then I'm going to let you pick it up from where we left off. So when we were together with Harris last time, um, we talked well, we talked a whole lot about the organization that he started, which is Austin Citywide. Uh, then we got a little bit into a story, but we didn't get much into it. Basically, we found out that Harris was... Uh, 
uh, one of ten children. He was number six of ten children. Uh, he had a Catholic background growing up. Uh, and then uh, he went to treatment mm. in 1989. Mm. And uh, then we also found out that uh, one time he actually took his mother's black mollies uh, accidentally when he was one years old. And that was quite an experience going to the drive-in movie. And then after that, uh, he had his first drunk when he was four years old. And that was quite an experience. And that's where we kind of had to leave it off. So... Uh, if you want to go back and catch the last bit of that episode, you can on uh, Harris's previous episode, uh, but we're going to pick it up from there. So, Harris, why don't you kind of take me from that point? Okay, great. Yeah, well, it's taken me a long, back to, long way back to four years old, but uh, I'd also like to, uh, you know, just state that I'm, I'm from, you know, uptown New Orleans. I was raised Catholic, and I'm from a very uh, competitive background there were many high expectations and uh there was a sense of loyalty you know to the family i felt like i was part of you know a family and we were working together i didn't really know what it was for but it was you know it was the early 60s and yeah, Vietnam coming up, there was just a lot of uh, anxiety looking back on it within the, the, the culture. And I think I picked up on that as a, as a young child. And, and I think that made, uh, you know, drinking and drugging a lot easier. So from getting on from four years old, I obviously, you know, made it to kindergarten and survived that. And then uh, when I was in seventh grade, I actually was... Uh, introduced to marijuana and LSD and I it was I was really a victim of peer pressure you know I was with my friends and they said hey do you want to try this and intuitively I really didn't but you know coming from uh, an alcoholic home and from a lot of peer pressure I said sure and uh, so I wound up uh, you know actually taking a hit of orange sunshine and i had a bad trip and it was it was it was horrible and for those who may not be familiar with that term orange sunshine that is lsd yeah and it was a little teeny pill i mean the size of a pinhead and i thought gosh what could this do you know if i can get this guy off my back i'll do it and uh well i found out that you know uh, that it can do a lot. And I, I think really it altered the course of the rest of my life, really. I, I, uh, I survived the trip, but I, I had flashbacks after from that. And, uh, you know, I, I experienced a, le- a level of terror with uh, being out of control from, you know, hallucinating and whatnot. It was, it was nothing that I anticipated or desired to have happen. But um, so I, I actually stopped doing that, but I continued smoking marijuana. And then in high school, I got in, uh, you know, the parties and going to the high school parties. I went to a Catholic high school, Nathan. Uh, 10th grade and uh, you know there was uh, you know girls and alcohol and uh, I was basically there was no supervision with 10 kids so I sort of just roamed the streets and got in a lot of trouble and I 
pretty much turned into sort of a juvenile delinquent. I did a lot of things that I'm not proud of, but I was sort of I was sort of part of a gang when a gang wasn't cool, if you, <laughs> if you would, you know. And we would drink and get drunk and, you know, do things that, uh, to other, you know, destroy property and harm other people and do things that, uh, you know, alcohol took me there. And, and uh, so I continued with, with that path, and then I flunked out of high school uh, at the end of my sophomore year, I, w I played sports. I was very engaged with uh, football, and then I broke my arm in high school, playing high school football, and I couldn't play any more football. And uh, so my thought was, why do you even want to go to high school if you can't play football? And I didn't really go to school to learn. I just went to school to be with my friends and to be playing in the party for the weekend. And growing up in uptown New Orleans, uh, that was not an uncommon background or theme. And I come from the culture is that they're still doing it today. And uh, so I went to, um, I graduated high school and then I, uh, I went and I wasn't ready for college. So I worked in a shipyard, uh, Avondale Shipyard. And I got up at four in the morning and rode a bike for two miles and then took a labor bus across the Mississippi River and I became a tack welder and that was going great until I lit my my shirt on fire and I thought it was about 800 degrees well you know when your shirt's on fire it gets 800 degrees and everybody was laughing at me and I took my mask off and they were all laughing and I'm like you know I don't think I'm gonna be too good of a ship welder <laughs> and uh, so Not we'd take me. the labor bus home and we'd all get drunk on the bus, riding the labor bus home. And and I did that for a semester. And I said, man, maybe, you know, I ought to try this college stuff. And so I went to University of Southwestern Louisiana for one year. And... Uh, excuse me, one semester, and Louisiana was just not for me. I had had some, a lot of trauma in high school. I had some incidents that I don't think I really need to talk about on, on uh, you know, the worldwide circuit, but you can use your own imagination, but it was uh, regarding, you know, sexuality and conduct, and I just needed a change of location, so I decided that uh I wanted to uh, go to Colorado, and so I decided that I would take a year off and move to Colorado and establish my in-state residency so I could get uh, in-state uh, tuition. And my, my father said, well, you can do that, but you'll have to pay for it. And I said, well, I guess I'll have to pay for it. So I moved to Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and I got a job uh, uh, at uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken and <laughs> Ramada Inn, and I was making $2.12 an hour, but I was on a mission to fulfill the criterion to become a Colorado resident. And, you know, I just, but wherever I went, my disease came with me, and I, I figured, you know, you get to Colorado, you got to drink Coors because you're in Colorado. Right. So I was with my brother and another friend, and I think when we moved out there, I brought six pounds of weed, and we smoked uh, 
We smoked six pounds of weed in nine months, <laughs> and we drank two uh, cases of Coors every day for a year, and that got me on the Rocky Mountain High. Yeah. And sort of did that, and then I, you know, made it through that year, established my residency, and went to the University of Colorado in Boulder, and uh, graduated four years later with a with a degree in political science and sort of a minor in philosophy. I I. I sort of went to school, but I didn't really go to school to learn. It was just sort of like you go. To, uh, it was just I was looking for the period on the end of the sentence. I sort of missed the missed the college experience. I'm realizing that now because I have a daughter that's uh, going to college and actually engaged in learning, and I see her approach to what she's trying to do and accomplish, and I'm like, wow, I wish I could have you know, uh, approach it that way. But the truth is, you know, I was an active alcoholic at the time. I was unaware of my condition as we learned, you know, through the steps and, and in recovery. And so it just turned out to be my story. But I did graduate. And uh, then I uh, went ahead and moved back to uh, New Orleans. I had a few jobs there on and off and then I moved to Corpus Christi and started a restaurant and catering uh, business with my brother who's a gourmet chef and we were sort of Cajun when Cajun wasn't cool <laughs> in Texas and uh, we had a full-time restaurant and catering business goes uh, great with drugging and drinking and uh, sort of rocked on that for uh for uh, three years, and then one of my customers saw that I was driven, uh, who was in uh, corporate medical sales, saw me and uh, wound up recruiting me and moved it, moved me back to New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, where I'm from, and I got uh, interested, or I got introduced to pharmaceutical sales, and I started with a corporation there, and I was in and out of medical sales for nine years from uh, basically uh, 86 to uh, uh, 83 to 92, excuse me. And uh, so I was in different aspects of corporate medical sales and... and, uh, So putting the pieces together, it sounds like you actually sobered up when you were doing those medical sales. That's You're you're exactly right. I got, uh, when I got kicked out of treatment in 1989, uh, I was uh, I was in between jobs, and my my brother was actually in treatment in Sierra uh, in in Arizona, and uh, for as an Alanine, and so I went to his family week, and I had a vital spiritual experience in the desert, and uh, sort of like with Citywide, uh, in that moment I was uh, I was walking in the desert, and the, it's an interesting sort of. St- story I'll comment on it for a minute there was a, a, a rabbit in the middle of the desert and I started walking towards a rabbit and when I walked towards a rabbit he would walk away and when I would stop he would stop and we played this sort of game at sunset and I was like wow this is no 
ordinary rabbit. It's like, you know, something's going on here. And then at one point, I stopped in that rabbit after doing this for about five minutes, that rabbit turned around from about 75 yards and walked all the way right back up to me within three feet of me and just stood there and looked at me. And that's when I had my vital spiritual experience. And I knew that I needed to, uh, you know, get some help for my drinking and drugging. And I wound up uh, checking into that treatment center uh, a week later and I got my desire chip that day and the next week I I actually turned around got on a plane went back and checked into um, Sierra Tucson for drugs and alcohol abuse and so uh, hold on just let me let me dive into that story a little bit more there (laughs) very interesting right so you're going back and forth with the rabbit yes and some things inside you clicked and made you what what was your thought process well what happened that's a good question i actually wrote a piece about this i am a writer and i write about various things but i i i uh, wrote a piece called magic rabbit and and uh what it was is that rabbit came back up and when it stopped it was real simple and i had what bill wilson calls a vital spiritual experience and to me what the what what i heard was that you're either going to live or you're going to die and it's your choice what do you want to do and it was just clear as a bell. And the scary part is someone like me was going to have to make that decision. And uh, obviously, I, I, I made the right decision because uh, 30 years later, um, here, you know, talking to you and have a pretty good <laughs> life, all things considered. It's still life, but uh, at least I have a program now to, you know, learn how to, uh, you know, deal with life on life's terms i call it l-o-l-t which is the alcoholics dilemma if you will or the challenges how to stay how to get sober stay sober and access you know spiritual principles that solve all my problems and, and just out of curiosity when you write things like that like you're a writer you're a creative guy do you publish them in different places you know or? that's interesting I, I published some i've worked with some songwriters and i've got a huge volume of work that you know it's funny as as much as i was in the sales and marketing and all that i have been highly unsuccessful with the work that i've done as in making it really accessible to other people it's more along the lines of i call it i'm a peace writer so i get an idea and i will i will work that idea to where i'm comfortable with it so i don't say that i'm a poet or a songwriter i don't really know what i am i come up with ideas it it moves me and i i'm like a dog with a bone i will work on it until i'm comfortable with it and i know i'm comfortable with it when i can look back 5 10 15 years later and review that piece and still like it just as much as when i wrote it and it's interesting because i think i've started three groups in alcoholics anonymous one of them's called bridge to shore the second one is called Firemakers, and the third one was Austin Citywide Group. And each of those groups, I actually wrote the piece that became the name of the group. But I did not plan on it going down like that. Again, it's just 
what happened to me. Wow. So literally it's my experience. When you say you're writing a piece, is that a, a, an article or a song or a poem? Or well, a... I guess you could call it, uh, well, it's interesting because Riverbend Church wanted to use one of the pieces that I wrote, which is the name of the group called Bridge to Shore, as they considered using it the theme for their church. And I told them, no, it doesn't belong to the church. It belongs to Alcoholics Anonymous. And so uh, they actually created a song for it. And I said, I didn't give them the authority to do that because I it wasn't what I wanted done with it, right, to be right. honest with you. So you definitely have a creative piece to you, right? I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. Everybody's creative. <laughs> you know, like they say, they ask uh, John, uh, one of the famous artists there, about what do you like about New Orleans and how does it different than the rest of the United States? They said, well, he said, well, that's a simple answer. When you, when you, uh, in the United States, you go to, cultural events but in new orleans you wake up in one <laughs> and so yes i i grew up a a uh, block from the new orleans uh creative arts center with ellis marcellus and went and playing their instruments and so it was just what we got used to okay so let's get back to your story so you 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 um you've had this vital spiritual experience with the magic rabbit yes Take me from there. Okay, great. That was uh, that was um, March fourteenth, uh, nineteen eighty nine, and I said okay. I went back to I, I did what I said. I went to treatment the next week and at Sierra Tucson, and I I lasted. Now I like to rephrase it as in I graduated early. Nineteen days later, they kicked me out of treatment, and that was the end of Family Week. And what they wanted to do was assigned me uh, what now we call sober living. Back then they were referred to as halfway houses and basically flipped pizzas in Arizona for six months minimum. And they wanted me to go to a halfway house. Well, what I didn't tell them is three days before the end of the third week, I had accepted a job from a corporation to move me from New Orleans to Austin selling pharmaceuticals, actually narcotics, for a uh, <laughs> pharmaceutical company that I didn't think they really needed to know about. There's a little bit of an irony there. It was a little irony, and my primary counselor from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, went to the owner and said, it's real simple, either Harris goes or I go, because they ain't both of us going to stay in this treatment center. So uh, Bill O'Donnell, the owner of Sierra Tucson at the sign, said, Harris... You go ahead and head up to the front of the office, and uh, you got some papers to sign. So I went up there, and I thought maybe I got a promotion or something. <laughs> I didn't know. And uh, they had me I – I had heard, uh, you know, growing up in New Orleans, you, you're familiar with MIA. They had me sign a new – uh, title called ASA, which is Against Staff Advice. And so I started looking at the print, and it was basically signing my suicide release forms, stating that they were not responsible for my demise upon exiting the center. So, so I was 
Were the, can you give some general details over the... Well, I was taken by that, actually, because first, as an alcoholic, I was extremely angry because everyone else in my pod, I was in, I was in the uh, saguaro cactus pod. Well, everyone in that group, or in my casita, as they called it, it was sort of like the romper room. Well, Johnny, you can go to treatment, or you can run three laps, or you can go to therapy. Or, you know, everybody else seemed like they they had options what their treatment would be upon concluding their uh, uh, treatment plan or their 30-day plan. Well, with me, I felt I had well, it, it wasn't I felt. With me, they had con- drawn a different conclusion, as in they said, Harris, there are no options for you. You're doing this or you leave. And they kicked me out. And I, to this day, I was, you know, well, looking back on it now, I discovered that I got what I needed, not what I wanted. And what I wanted was to be the A student, to be the perfect you know, treatment center buff and casually move over to Austin and start my new career and get do what they said. They kicked me out and they gave me two things. They gave me a big book and they gave me a piece of paper saying blame is a block to recovery. And I took those and 11 days later, I moved to Austin, Texas, and I knew no one. I had no friends. I had a high-paying uh, corporate medical job of which my uh, my manager did not know. I had just gotten kicked out of treatment. Of course, I didn't tell him because I didn't think it was you know conducive to my employment. <laughs> and I was living in a hotel by myself, and I left my girlfriend. I knew no one, and uh, I was completely desperate and broken. And so once I got there. I, uh, you know, what I learned uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous many years later is that they talked about alcohol was but a symptom of my disease. And once I stop drinking and drugging, that the causes and conditions will come up and have to be addressed. So it was, I call them the three stooges, me, myself, and I, (laughs) uh, my three sponsors at the time living in the hotel by myself trying to manage my life with a high-pressure job and having no skills, no tools, no anything. So uh, I came from a, I heard it put rather elegantly five years later, they said, if you're new and you're desperate, good. If you're new and you're intellectual, we hope you get desperate. And uh, that desperation at that level five years later, I could look back and see that's how I entered you know, recovery and, and entered, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous by myself, driving around, knowing no one, and, uh, you know, started going to meetings, and and then I wound up uh, getting a sponsor about three months later after two guys I called, and they didn't call me back, and I went into another meeting after I almost jumped off the 360 bridge that afternoon, and I went into a meeting. I said, I think I need a uh, new approach to sponsorship. So I went in there, and there were about 15 people just sitting around, and I said, hey, my name's Harris. I just almost jumped off the 360 bridge. I'm an alcoholic, and if you're not willing to stay after this meeting, the hell freezes over. Don't raise your blankety-blank hand. And one guy, 
who I'd never seen or laid eyes on before or heard from, raised his hand and said I could do that. And uh, he did just that. He took care of me. I still consider him my sponsor today. He was sober one, March 13, 1988, which is one year and one day uh, longer than I had been sober. And he took me through the steps. He cared for me, and he did exactly what he said he would do. And uh, he said he was not my you know, emotional support dog. He was not my this. He said, I'm my your sponsor and I'll take you through the steps. And uh, other than that, you know, that that's all I'm really good for. And I still consider him my sponsor today. And that man saved my life. So if you're out there and uh, you're considering sponsorship, uh, I hope one would assume the responsibility to, that comes with that and that there could be someone like me on the other end of the phone. And the moral of the story is, if you're not up for the job, please don't raise your hand because there's somebody's, might be someone's life like me at stake on the other end of the phone call. And what Harris is uh, referring to, just in case people don't know, they're in different parts of the uh, world, uh, is that in Texas, many meetings will say, if you're willing to be a sponsor, please raise your hand. Yeah. All right, we will be continuing our conversation in just a moment with Mr. Harris. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at www.soberspeak.com. You can also find the donate button on our website if you wish to use it, if and only if the spirit moves you and you feel very comfortable about it. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization. Through our own contributions, we are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes all right now back to mr harris s all right so you're in alcoholics anonymous now you have a sponsor a sponsor who is willing to go and do the work with you and somebody to quote care for you so to speak take me from there and move forward okay that's that's a that's a good start yeah i got sober in uh, hilltoppers group in austin texas at saint Teresa's church and uh so i started going to that group and uh i would go every day uh sometimes twice a day and my sponsor went to the same meeting and a sponsor if you you're out there and you don't know it's someone that uh you know aa is real simple you know we admitted we were powerless over alcohol what they told me is that i don't get to we admitted we by me myself and i in any aspect of first person singular so i was going to have to transcend me myself and i to we ourselves and uh, we ourselves and us and uh, so that was going to take uh work and it was going to take uh, a sponsor so someone that would be my sponsor who would help me get through the steps of alcoholics anonymous and again my sponsor was a veterinarian heart surgeon but he was really just a little country boy from uh, you know the the hillside of arkansas i called him a squirrel hunter you know because he had short pants on t-shirts walking around smoking cigars he hardly said anything and he made me uh he made me uh very nervous because he reminded me of my background which was uh 
uh, just uh, back to that science. He didn't say too much, but he was a very great listener. And, uh, you know, he helped me uh, access the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. He would be the type of person. We talk about AA being a program of attraction. For example, when my girlfriend had left me, excuse me, my higher power, I didn't have a... at my high power it was my girlfriend then i didn't know that till you know she's walking out the door a year later well when she left i called uh uh, david i said david i think this is it i think i'm gonna kill myself today i just can't do this anymore and i said hey what do you think and he said well gee harris i guess i won't be your sponsor anymore and you know it was that type of of interaction with someone that I'd gotten to know, you know, over the year that I was not willing to actually give up my life for. So, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous works in a very sort of, you know, mysterious, sort of mythical way. But I, the truth is, you know, this person had done, shown up for me more than anyone in my life, you know, ever had again i come from an alcoholic home i was affected by the disease of alcoholism i didn't trust anybody i didn't trust myself i was terrified all the time and you know it took me three years of continuous sobriety to get five minutes of continuous serenity that was my emotional state when i arrived in the rooms but again this guy with complete compassion and serenity and selflessness put my welfare above his his own i mean i would call him you know as i said he was a veterinarian heart surgeon and he'd take my call in the middle of a surgery and he would say you know what's your problem so i'd give him my you know sad story for the day and uh and and he'd say hey you know why don't you just you know put the knife down or, you know, whatever you're up to now and come on over. And then I'd go over and I'd go into the operating room and he's operating on, you know, a little dog and that, you know, open heart surgery. And I'd flip a mask on because I worked in surgery. I was comfortable in that environment. And then he'd say, gee, Harris, what's your problem? And I'd say, you know, now that I think about it, David, I don't think I have any problems. It sounds like that dog's the one with the problem. And he would just laugh. So, again, he was a demonstrator of principles. He didn't tell me what to do. He showed me what to do. And and for this alcoholic, uh, there's a story in our book, he had to be shown. And that was the type of uh, leadership and demonstration that made the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, attracted to me uh, personally when I got here. And um, anyhow, nine months later, I got around to doing my fourth and fifth step. And uh, then I, you know, started growing and, and, and uh, stayed sober, started repairing some relationships. My parents, my mother and father came to see me get my one-year chip. And uh, that was still, you know, a very impactful uh, moment for me. It was the first time in my life I had ever spent time with just my parents alone, and so oh, that wow. was uh, that because was re- so many brothers. And there sisters. was just so many, you know. And but they came over. They came to Austin, and probably had two hundred people in that room, and and uh, it was really interesting. After that, you know, I was really. Uh, they were there for the weekend, and I went into a massive depression right after that. 
and I was suicidal that, after it, that. I, I can't linearly connect what happened, but I think it just brought up a lot of the trauma that I had experienced growing up, and it was, you know, actually being, you know, having support and unconditional love and my parents there, it was, uh, it was, it was very, very difficult for me to process it emotionally uh, shortly thereafter. Oh, wow. Uh, but I was able to, you know, get the help through going to meetings and sharing and, uh, you know, let out a lot of emotion. I was the type of alcoholic in the room, so I'd just say, hey, put Harris in the back, let him start crying and forget about him, don't even worry he's here. And I, you know, I probably, you know, I probably went to, oh God, let me try not to exaggerate, 1,500 meetings in, in my first three years, and I was probably, I call it the, Charlie Manson suite or the Charlie Manson fetal position, probably <laughs> about uh, three or 400 out of those 1,500 meetings, they'd just sit there and let me cry. And then I wrote a piece called Would You Hold Me While I Cry, which was a piece that I wrote looking back on it to myself, but I didn't realize that that I, that I was uh, uh, writing it at that time. And I did have uh, actually one of James Taylor's uh, uh, backup singer, so work with that piece that he liked, and anyhow, it was. It was. Uh, I've always been interested in music and the creative process, and sort of attracted that in my life, and so that was uh, one piece that I had uh, uh, worked with, and another guy with the Omen Brothers actually uh, did uh, work with that piece. Also, a guy out in California. That did some work with them. You know, anyhow, I don't know why I, I went in that direction other than sometimes you create things and you don't really, you know, you're not conscious in that moment or really what it's about. But as I got sober and started getting out of myself, I was like, wow, maybe this would be useful to other people. And, and then I started seeing that a lot of what I wrote, I thought, uh, you know, was, would be useful to people in recovery. And I, you know, I think, again, I have not been one to get out and self-promote or try to get this public. I don't know. It's just sort of not my thing. I, I think I'm sort of wondering if my daughter in the future, well, I guess I'm not finished yet, but I also wonder if my daughter in the future will take a lot of my work and, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe she would be a better custodian of it to see make it uh that that's often uh as it says i'm an egomaniac with a inferiority complex being an alcoholic but it's it's sort of uh you know i i think i've got a lot of uh work that's useful i just haven't been it just hasn't been part of my story yet to see that it gets uh, maybe to the ultimate beneficiaries which is everyone else other than myself but i'm open to that but i'm i don't make it uh my life's work i just i, I just write it and um but that's been interesting uh that i started taking up writing as a little boy and i took it up as a little boy to survive because the bottom line where i come from it was so violent and so insane and so unpredictable that my only salvage was i felt like if i had a pen and i can write something down that it 
was actually mine. It was it gave me a sense of ownership and empowerment and that I could this is actually mine because my clothes, my food, my everything else was helter skelter. It was first come, first serve and it was sort of a war zone and I don't make it uh my parents did the best they can. I love my parents. I was with both of them when they passed. I spent a lot of time to uh, with them, each of them, before they passed. And I was with them when they passed. And Alcoholics Anonymous gave me that gift to learn how to show up for my parents. And uh, I was also able to do that with my daughter. My daughter would come and spend time with me and she could uh, be with her grandparents and see them pass and be with them. And it was, uh, it was a very beautiful, powerful thing. And people say, well, would that be uh, too much for a a son or a daughter or a young child. I said, well, I don't know. I, I know it wasn't too much for them, but it was all that I could take to get myself to to go and show up and be there. But AA, again, taught me how to act my way into right thinking because I couldn't think my way into right acting. And through the process of recovery, I was able to do that. And then uh, anyhow, I got some stability. And then it and uh, uh, in 2000, I was 11 years sober, and I started uh, the group of Bridge to Shore with four other men. And uh, that was the other side of that bridge I almost uh, jumped off of at River Bend Church. And now we have about uh, 32 meetings a week. AA, Al Anon probably have 3,000 people a month attend that group. It's uh, one of the larger groups. And in Alcoholics Anonymous in Austin, Texas. So, yeah, I say I wrote the piece as in the the piece comes from page 53 and 56 out of the uh, text of Alcoholics Anonymous where they address the the bridge of reason to the desire truer faith. And so I, I got uh, with the other four founding members of the group and I said, hey, you know, what about calling it uh, Bridge to Shore? And I wrote a piece and they said we love it so it was a synergistic effect of, of uh, all five of us uh, concluding that would be the name of the group and so that group's been uh, going on well let's see February 7 February 17th of 2000 will be uh, 2020 will be 20 years for that group and then I started another group uh, called Firemakers in 2004, which was uh, comes from the 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 passage in the second edition of uh, uh, the uh, and the third edition, but the the the, the second uh, 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 what is it preface to the second edition uh, there in um, in the big book, and it talks about the spark that was ignited between the the uh, the the uh, Akron uh, 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 doctor and the uh, and the New York stockbroker, and I had that image of a spark, and then I heard uh, one of my uh, speakers and mentors in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, uh, Bob Bazan spoke and he told a story about a fire maker and it hit me at a deep place. I was at a Brownwood conference and that was in September and then I wrote uh, Fire Makers in December of that year and then March uh, 4th of 2004 
we started uh, Firemakers, and uh, that was with my wife and some of her friends, and uh, and they that that grew out of all chiefs and no Indians at Bridge to Shore. It got so crazy, often a resentment or chaos will create a catalyst for another group and she wanted to have a women's group i said well won't we tag on you know a co-ed group and so we started another group uh, then and now it has uh, grown morphed and developed into a uh, strictly a women's group called Firemakers, which is i think the largest uh, women's mating uh, in uh, Austin, Texas, it meets every Saturday, and that developed uh, really out of a uh, the reality of some groups. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, karmic energy and synergy that comes to creating a successful Alcoholics Anonymous a group, and one of the main things is access to space and time and what i mean by that is we're undisciplined people we come and go and we don't like to be told to do so the the room has to be completely accessible well that was great and until this church had very expensive equipment and they can't have too many people like me running around in there with everybody's got a key that's a great way to you know a church not to have an organ or something mm-hmm. you know so I, mm-hmm. i'm being a bit humorous but <laughs> but uh we we kept the group going and it was great but it sort of got where it was more useful to uh uh to be strictly on saturdays with the women's meeting but the I'd like to make the point of that meeting is where Austin Citywide Group was first rooted in that fellowship hall at St. Michael's Church. And so my experience is one thing has led to another. And A, I got sober, and then I created uh, Bridge Shore, and then we created Firemakers, and then I had a dream, and then came Citywide, but the dream from Citywide came as a result of the Fellowship Hall in Riverbend Church. I asked them before, and they said, no, that's not a good idea, but once it the spark was ignited in Citywide in March of 07 at St. Michael's Church, it's like the Red Sea Open. They thought it was a great idea. We moved to the larger venue at, at Riverbend Church the next month, and uh, the sequence has completed. Now we'll be uh, going on 13 years of... Uh, Austin Citywide Group meeting monthly uh, in the format I described in the earlier talk in a in a linear route. So it, you know, my I guess what I'm saying is I think my experience has just you know been sort of hopefully be open to being a conduit to create an environment where other people, mainly you, if you're listening to this and you think you may have an alcohol, you know, a, a problem with drugs or alcohol, that there's hope for you here. And my one of my favorite AA speakers set up and he, he actually said this and walked up the stage. He said, this is my AA talk. There is hope here. And he walked off the stage and that's it. So if you're out there and you're listening and I'm speaking to you or something resonates with you, you know, there's a place that you can go and, you know, you can call Alcoholics Anonymous or, you know, in a group or, you know, if you're you got a friend or relative 
you know, it's got a problem, you think? We have our Al-Anon uh, fellowship. We're a family group. And, you know, there's, there's, there's room for you here because it's real simple with me. I'm going to make it real simple. If I can get sober and stay sober, anyone can. And I do believe anyone that's been sober long term has drawn this conclusion, you know, and the conclusion is the proof that we extend each other through sharing our experience, strength, and hope. And it's called a wisdom, uh, being a witness or a testament to the power. Uh, some of us call it God, but a power greater than ourselves that makes not drinking or do, doing any drugs possible. And I had to conclude that of myself, I can't not do that. And if I've learned nothing else from, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is that it's the first drink that gets me drunk. And if I don't take a drink, I won't get drunk. And it sounds really, really simple. It's so simple, it's true. But the truth of the matter is, it's taken me a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of step work and a lot of service work and a lot of being open to changing my point of view to have that, you know, be the continuous aspect of my life. And now, you know, I'm married. I've got a stable home. My daughter's 19. She's a sophomore year in college. She's, you know, she's just, I have no humility to begin with, but and a lot less when I start talking about her. She's just mind-boggling. And it's because she grew up in a safe home, a stable home, She's never seen her parents drink. We are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but she has been able to not have her innate voice taken to her through someone else's disease and their, you know, her other primary caretaker's alcoholism affect and destroy and distort her perception. And for this, I'm grateful. And for this, I also think that she will be a catalyst to continue uh, the work of the family disease being arrested because it is a family disease and it's like the blob. It just moves from one family to the next, from one door to the next, and it it's just endless. And so if, if my greatest accomplishment in, in life is not what I have done, it's what I hopefully will never do again, and that's take the first drink because I never, ever want to see you know, my daughter see, you know, her father drunk. And now, you know, I have an opportunity to completely transcend my experience growing up, which was, uh, you know, obviously uh, uh, sort of the opposite of that. You know, I come from a family where we were, there was always alcohol, and I don't want to take my parents uh, the you know siblings inventory, but it was uh, it was a it, it was a disease that we were affected by. So anyhow, that's great, Harris. And by the way, I've never heard of alcoholism referred to as the blob before. <laughs> I think that's great. You're right; it just goes from one door to the next. Thank you so much for both of these episodes, Mr. Harris. It has been a real pleasure. Uh, I'm so glad you could come in here and sit down with me, and uh, I know the listeners are going to enjoy this. All right, we're going to wrap it up with page 164 out of the big book. 
It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. God bless you. Thank you again, Harris, for coming in. Thank you. Once again, thank you, Mr. Harris S., for stepping up to the Sober Speak mic and sharing your story with all of the listeners out there. I sure do appreciate it, and I know the listeners are going to appreciate it as well. Um, if you'd been in, if you've been inspired by either this episode or any of the other episodes that you have heard, please pause your device, click on the share button. And uh, send this over to a, a friend or family member. It may be exactly what they need today. All right. Now on to a little bit of uh, listener de la feedback or feedback de la listener. I know I've been struggling with that before and which one it is. It is actually either none of the, I, I don't think it's either of those because that is a, a Spanglish, right? Uh, that is me trying to mix up a couple different uh, languages at one time. And it is very apropos for this first piece of listener feedback. The first piece of listener feedback comes from Patricia. And I got to tell you, when I read this one, it just melted my heart. It literally did bring a little uh, tear to my eye. For I, I don't know why, but it just hit me uh, at some sort of emotional level. And Patricia writes in and she says, Hola, Sober Speak. My name is Patricia, and I've been listening for four months now. I live in Florida, and I find your podcast because I listen the recovery show. I'm learning English and listening to the podcast. It's helping me not only get better at my learning, but also to my recovery. I listen at work in construction, and I share the podcast with my friends in my group, especially those that know their learning or speak English. I-N-G-L-I-S. It's so nice listening when you say words in Spanish or <laughs> or at least you try. <laughs> oh, I love that. You always make me laugh. And thank you so much for all the help you and your guests have been giving me. God bless you in a couple of big praying hands. And I wrote back to her and I said, thank you very much for writing in. It just meant the world to me. And then she wrote back and she said, like they say in my hometown, OMG, double exclamation point. I didn't expect your email, triple exclamation point. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for this. I showed to my daughter and husband, which they are in recovery as well. AA and Alateen, how nice of you. Believe me, you and your guests are giving me too much. Oh, that is fantastic. And then some big namaste hands again, or prayer hands. And then it says, Dios 
Te Ben Diga, and then a couple of uh, angel icons, I think is what that is, heavenly icons. I don't know exactly what it is. So, well, first of all, a couple things that hit me. Number one, I I think what you're saying in there is that you use uh, Sober Speak to help you pick up the English language. And I think about me and my knucklehead friends. How do you say knucklehead in Spanish? <laughs> that, have been, that have been on this uh, podcast. And by the way, uh, I don't mean to call all of the guests knuckleheads. I'll think about a few close guy friends I have. All right. But nonetheless, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about you and and your friends uh, learning English from listening to this podcast, and that just oh, that melts my heart. And 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 I did, and I had to look up Dios te bendiga. Thank goodness for the Google. And so I looked it up, and obviously, you know, that means. Uh, uh, God bless and God bless you. And thanks for listening in here now on. I, okay, so I think that number 100 is CN. So this is episode 101. So would that be CN E Uno or Uno E CN? I think it's CN E Uno or just CN Uno. I don't know. But nonetheless, uh, I, I may be completely off and. Uh, and I'll tell you what's going through my head as I'm I'm actually recording this <laughs> here right now. I know the word, I'm pretty sure the word uh, papas means potatoes in Spanish, but I am unsure about how to work that one word I know into this conversation. Well, I, I guess I just did somehow, some way. Anywho, uh, I guess we'll just go ahead and say, <laughs> Adios, and I'll try to work in some of my other Spanish words that either I know or think I know uh, on some of the upcoming episodes. I won't, I, I won't burden you with all those words at once, uh, so to speak, audience. Anyway, all right. Tom writes in via Facebook. And he says, I've just got to say, I listened to the Bob S. interviews. They were incredibly engaging. Uh, Just in case you don't know what he's talking about, there's Bob S. Part 1 and Part 2. It's about three or four episodes back from this one. Uh, They are engaging for sure. He said, I was literally glued to my iPhone. I mean, what a story Bob has. So much there to learn for us all. I'm not ashamed to admit I was actually in tears at the end when he described meeting the young man and how they both grew from that faith, fateful event. Wow, just so powerful. Thank you. I know exactly what you're talking about, Tom. Uh, and once again, if you're listening to this and you hadn't heard that, I would just go back there and listen to it. It's really an incredible story. Eddie writes in via our YouTube channel. Now, we don't get much, many comments like this from the YouTube channel. We are available on YouTube, though. Um, and, and Eddie is listening in from the Netherlands, or Netherlands. And he says, hello, John. Recently, I've been listening to some of the podcasts of Sober Speak via Stitcher. That's a podcast player. And now I see they're on YouTube as well. You are correct. I found the podcast 
podcast very inspirational and it motivates me to continue my life without alcohol. Good luck to you and the guests on your show. Greetings from the Netherlands. Uh, Eddie, well, thank you very much, Eddie. I appreciate you writing in and I'm glad you're picking up our uh, little fledgling show here on uh, YouTube. Fernando writes in, oh, my friend, Fernando. He says, dear John, and uh, Fernando's been listening since the beginning, and uh, I just love it when I hear from him. I, I like to hear from all of you, but uh, Fernando's just been there from the very start, and uh, gosh, it's so good to hear from him. Dear John, I get a lot of dear John letters, nonetheless. Thank you for your dedication, effort, and enthusiasm in producing a life-saving recovery podcast. I still listen to each episode like I did the first day. Your work is utterly important for my well-being. Oh, wow. I pray to God that he keeps you sober and sound, your friend in Spain, one day at a time. Fernando, well, I pray he keeps you sober and sound, Mr. Fernando. And I'm so glad that you're over there listening to us in Spain. And I'm so glad that we can be a small part of your journey and your recovery. And thank you for all the kind words. Uh, oh, and I just have to say this again. I think I've said it on another show, Fernando, but whenever I hear your name, I start singing that ABBA song in the back of my head, right? No, 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 Fernando. Anyway, I'm so sorry to have done that at a public level with your name, but uh, hopefully you understand. It's just what goes on in my little pea brain. Sam writes in, and Sam says, my name is Sam. That sounds like a, a movie or, a, or a something like, doesn't it, or a TV show. My name is Sam. Anyway, I live in wonderful Mississippi, and I'm 29 years old. Let me try to do this. M-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. M-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. We used to have to do that in elementary school really quick. Nonetheless, I have eight days sober this time, he says. My drinking began when I returned home from Afghanistan nine years ago. I've been attending meetings on and off for the past four years, but until this point have not put in the work needed to become more than a sober drunk. I am in the process of being medically retired from the army, so I try to fill my days with as much positive energy as possible. Sober Speak has become a daily reprieve for me in that regard, along with counseling and meetings. I really appreciate the resource that you provide and look forward to more episodes, exclamation point. Best regards, Sam T. Well, Sam, thank you for writing in. Thank you for your service to our country. And I know we've been going back and forth trying to get you into that secret Facebook group. I haven't given up on you. Uh, you know, and this is usually what happens is people don't have access to or, uh, uh, the, 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 the email address that is associated with their Facebook group anymore. Long story short, but anyway, Sam, we're going to get you in there. I promise. Ryan writes in, what does Ryan here say? He says, hi, John, loving your podcast. I wait, I walk two to three miles every day for ec exercise and really enjoy listening. Would it be possible to join the Facebook group you mentioned in your podcast? Well, of course it will, Ryan. I am 15 months sober and loving my new life. 
Thanks, Ryan. Well, we got you in the the super secret Facebook group there, Ryan. And uh, I'm glad that you can uh, listen to us while you're doing that uh, walking. And I've mentioned this before, but you're killing two birds with one stone. I mentioned it with another listener. In other words, you're walking, staying healthy, and... You are listening to Sober Speak, my friend, and all the speakers that we bring in here. Kim R. writes in and she says, I love the podcast. Listen to Bob S. today, another Bob S. commentary, and I was blown away. Perfect meeting in between meetings. I live in Tyler, Texas, and I have been sober since 2013. December 1st, 2013. I lived in Dallas for 11 years until I drank myself out of a career. Moved home to Tyler Tyler, and finally surrendered when I couldn't handle the consequences of my drinking anymore. It got ugly, but it took what it took. I think a lot of people can... Relate to that, Miss Kimar. I started listening to podcasts about a year ago, mostly true crime podcasts, laugh out loud, but realized it probably wasn't great to fill my head with, with that stuff all the time. So I started thinking about other things that interest me, and sobriety is a big one. So started listening to Sober Speak. I searched on Stitcher, and that's how I found your podcast. It's been a game changer. I am active in my groups and it is it's awesome to have a place to experience others' stories whenever I want. So much strength and hope helps me to stay right-sized and continue to be thankful for this wonderful gift. Thank you again for what you're doing. It is service work at its best. Oh, thank you, Kim R. Well, thank you very much for writing in. Whitney writes in, she says, Hi, John, I'm in Springdale, Arkansas. I found Sober Speak through the recovery show, through my friend Spencer over at the recovery show podcast, as I am a double winner. I used to listen to the recovery radio network a lot, which is recordings of speakers from conventions and such, and I still listen to them time to time, but I really enjoy the style of Sober Speak more. It just feels more personal to me. I'm coming up on seven years next month. I got sobered at 25 through a drug court. That court program kept me coming back long enough to realize that the people in the meetings had something I wanted. I had been coming to meetings for about six meetings, drinking a few beers here and there, or spending a night drinking, try to control it. And then I spent Halloween with this guy who wasn't serious about being sober at all. We went to a haunted house, and then we went to the liquor store. I thought I would just spend one night drinking with him, and it turned out to be a two-week bender. And she says, after I went through the steps for the first time and finished drug court, I decided I wanted to go back to school. I had done one semester of college and dropped out because it was conflicting with my drinking and using. N.A. is not real strong here in Northwest Arkansas, and I started to realize that I wanted more. There was one guy who came to the meetings a lot who used to go to AA and talked about the big book. I really liked him and looked up to him, so I asked him to take me to some AA meetings, and he did. His wife's in AA, and she became my first AA sponsor. And it has all grown from there. I just finished a master's degree in social work last spring. And now that I'm not in school, I have been getting more involved again with Alcoholics Anonymous. 
My husband and I lived in Fayetteville, but just got a house in Springdale last spring. Springdale last spring. So I have never been getting involved in a group in spring. So I, I, so I have been getting involved in a group in Springdale. I have been chairing meetings and I am the new GSR. I went to my first district meeting last month. Anyway, she says, I love your podcast, and I think I have listened to every episode, some more than once. Well, you know, that is very interesting, and I think about the first 10 episodes I ever did, I have thought about eliminating eliminating those just because they were so, at least in my estimation, not so great, and I didn't know what I was doing. So it's interesting to know that you've gone back through the whole catalog. I'm glad you have, Whitney. My apologies if this was way more information than you were looking for, but you caught me after a good meeting and I felt like sharing. It's such a beautiful place to be sober. Well, thank you for sharing. I appreciate it, Whitney. Also, do you think you will ever have Andrew A. back on? I really love his talk. Thank you again. Have a great weekend. Whitney. All right, Whitney. Well, thank you. And you know what? I have put the shout out there to Mr. Andrew. He has said he's going to come on in here and I'm just putting it out publicly now. Andrew, if you're listening, you have said you are going to come back in here for another episode. So you have to do that now. Whitney and the rest of the gang wants to hear you too. All right, everybody. That concludes Listener De La Feedback or Feedback De La Listener for this week. God bless you. Keep coming back. I think I'm coming back next week. Like I always say, it is one week at a time. Keep coming back, folks. It works if you work it.